you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians is in the, the New Testament, so in the back uh, quarter of your Bible. And probably about halfway through the New Testament would be a good place to, to look. Um, the book of Ephesians, this letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. We always have a big idea as a part of our sermon uh, and we're going to get to that big idea, but I actually want to jump right into the passage today um, and see what Paul says about himself, because I think that's going to help us get uh, to our a proper application and response to to what he's saying here. What to get to the the intended response, as we call it, of this passage. And so usually we have a little bit of a runway before we take off into the text. We're like a helicopter. We're just going to go straight up right now, okay? So we're going right into the text. Um, if, if you were to look back at the beginning of this letter, uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, you would see that Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's verse 1, first verse of this book. He identified himself as one commissioned by God, uh, by God himself as a witness to the resurrected Christ and a minister of the good news that's found through faith in him. And now, having described the gospel in detail in chapters 1 and 2, including the welcoming in of the Gentiles as equal heirs of eternal life alongside the Jews, Paul offers a second introduction of sorts. Look at it, the first verse of Ephesians chapter 3. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. In chapter 3, verse 1, he doesn't identify himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, but what? A prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not only that, but he adds that his imprisonment was on behalf of or for the sake of the Gentiles. Let's think about these two descriptors a little bit more, okay? First, Paul was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, on the surface, we might say, well, actually, Paul was a prisoner of Rome. Or we could say that he was a prisoner of, of Caesar. But Paul knew what we're all learning in the first question of the New City Catechism, that he was not his own, but belonged to God. He knew that God was sovereign over his life, that he was controlling all things. He knew the truth of what Jesus said to Pilate when Pilate presumed to think that he had some kind of authority over Jesus, to which Jesus replies in John chapter 19, verse 11, to Pilate, or he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Nothing happens to the Christian. Nothing that happens to the Christian is outside of God's control, no matter how strong that outside force seems to be. So first of all, Paul says he's a prisoner of Christ. Jesus. Second, he was a prisoner on behalf of or for the sake of the Gentiles. As we read the account of Paul being taken to Rome, of which uh, Joshua read some uh, early por portions of in the book of Acts during the scripture reading, we find that at the, at the core of why Paul ended up in prison was because the Jewish people continued to accuse him of stirring things up. And what was Paul doing to upset the Jewish people so much that they would seek not only to imprison him, but also to kill him? Well, he was preaching that Jesus, as the Messiah, was, was opening up salvation to the Gentiles. 
If you go back to Acts 22 that Joshua read, you'll see it was when Paul said that God was sending him to the Gentiles that the crowd then erupts and says, get this guy out of here. There's probably a sense in which, I'm not, I, I'm not saying this is 100% true, but I think there's a sense in which if Paul was willing to preach that Jesus was the Messiah, but just the Messiah of the Jewish people and the Jewish people alone, he probably would have escaped a lot of his persecution and his imprisonment. But as we will see in the rest of this paragraph, that was not Paul's calling. He was willing to suffer for the sake of others because that was what Christ had called him to do, just as Jesus has called us to love others, enemies and friends alike, in the sacrificial way that Jesus has modeled for us. Now, as, as Paul gave this description of himself, he was heading in, in one direction with his thoughts. He's writing this, this letter, or dictating it probably, and he's heading in one direction, and he's going to pick that train of thought back up in verse 14. You can see that he comes back to this phrase. He begins here in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, and then in chapter uh, 3, verse 14, he also says, for this reason. That's because he's picking up uh, his thought where he had left it off in, in verse 1. There's a prayer that then follows, which is probably what Paul was originally going to write when he started right here, but this description of himself in chapter 3, verse 1, sidetracks him for a moment. He gets a little distracted. Maybe we can use our imaginations for a minute, and we can go back to that place. You can see Paul where he's in prison, and he's dictating this letter probably to a scribe, and maybe you can watch him, and he's pacing as he's dictating the letter, and he, he says this line, and then he pauses. He says, well, so it'd be something like this. Paul's dictating and he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And so now he's going to talk about that a little bit. From verse 2 through verse 13, Paul goes on a digression. It's as if he's coming north on 65 to go through Louisville and he decides instead He's going to take 265 around and then pick 65 back up south of Sellersburg and then continue on his, his path. It's a digression. And it would seem that his mention of being in prison is the specific thing that causes him to go on this aside. Part of the reason for saying that it's the imprisonment that causes this shift in thought is that he ends this paragraph in verse 13 by coming back to that reality. Look at Ephesians 3 verse 13. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So this paragraph that goes from verse 1 to verse 13 is bookended by suffering. He begins with that, and then it leads to this digression, and he ends with it. So what's going on? Here's what I think is going on, okay? Paul mentions the fact that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, and he wonders if they in fact might be ashamed of that reality. Related to this shame, Paul could be concerned that the Ephesian believers, especially the Gentile Christians, will doubt the reality of what he is saying. In other words, they could be thinking something like this. The Ephesian believers are thinking, if this, if this message of the gospel is really from God, and if it's really supposed to be taken to all people, then why is Paul suffering in this way? They may think further, could it be that, that those who are seeking to imprison him are actually right for doing so? Maybe, maybe we Gentiles aren't included in this promise. 
You know, I think we've become very accustomed to the fact that Paul was thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. <laughs> in the same way that we've become accustomed to the scandal of the cross of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was crucified, we, we just take that and we accept it, that that's what happened. But these were shameful things in first century culture, just as they actually would be in our own. Having one of your key lead, the key leaders of your faith in a Roman prison is not good PR. And it didn't fill the Ephesians with a lot of confidence, really. Put yourself in their sandals, if you will. Uh, however, if you, however you slice it, if it, it's gonna be hard and you're gonna have some questions if all of the elders of our church are thrown in jail tomorrow for preaching the gospel. That's gonna be hard to stomach, right? You're gonna say, I wonder if, did they do something wrong? It, is this really right? Maybe, maybe they did do something that they shouldn't have done. And because of all of this, Paul moves into this aside of sorts in verse, so that in verse 13, his readers would understand suffering for the gospel correctly. And in understanding suffering better, the, the persecution of us or of other believers would not cause us to lose heart. It wouldn't cause us to be discouraged. He says to the Ephesians, and to Christians throughout all the centuries, even to this very day, and we've made it to the big idea, this is what he says, in the face of opposition, have confidence in the truth and the glory of the gospel. In the face of opposition, which is inevitable, in the face of opposition, have confidence. Have confidence in the truth and the glory of the gospel. In the face of opposition, have confidence in the truth and glory of the gospel. Opposition to the message of the gospel is inevitable. The message that we are all sinners in need of a savior confronts our natural pride. The message of salvation to all people confronts our natural prejudices. The call to turn away from evil and wickedness confronts our natural rebellion. And so we all naturally push away the truth of salvation in Jesus and the world around us opposes this message of hope in Jesus alone. And when we are opposed by others, including those in power or maybe just those that we respect or those that we love, it can cause our confidence to wane. Is this message true? Am I really a part of God's family? Is this whole Christianity thing worth giving my life to or maybe even giving my life for? Could all of these apparently smart and halfway decent people who are telling me that I'm wrong could they maybe have a good argument against what I'm proclaiming? That uncertainty and that fear that comes from persecution, that comes from suffering, that comes from opposition is difficult to stomach sometimes. But God's word tells us, in the face of opposition, have confidence. And where do we find confidence? We, found it, we find it in the truth and in the glory of the gospel, that this is actually the wonderful truth of God, that there is no reason to be ashamed of it but rather more reason to proclaim it and announce it. So with that in mind, look with me at Ephesians chapter three, verses one through 13. This is what God's word says. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery 
is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In the face of opposition, have confidence in the truth and the glory of the gospel. Up until this point, Paul has spoken about the revelation of the gospel throughout the ages. He began in chapter 1 by talking about God's plans from eternity past, and then he showed the Ephesians how the grace of God came specifically to them. But now he's going to speak about another movement in the revelation of the gospel's message, and he wants to, to set the reality of what he's just talked about in the context of, of redemption history. So, here in verses 2 through 7, he speaks first of the revelation of the mystery of the gospel. That's point one of two, the revelation of the mystery of the gospel, verses 2 through 7. Mystery. Mystery is the, a, a key word, if not the key word, in this paragraph. I'm not sure what comes into your mind when you hear the word mystery. Maybe you think about a mystery story that you have read, like Sherlock Holmes or a book by Agatha Christie, or something like that. Andrea and I like to watch Masterpiece Mystery on PBS, which often involves a detective trying to solve some sort of a crime. They live in these towns where it seems like someone is murdered every other week, you know. I don't know how that works, but. Uh, there's a show called Unsolved Mysteries that I think I only know from commercials that came on between shows when I was a kid. Uh, but that word, unsolved, I think that gets at the heart of what we often think about when we think about mysteries. Namely, that they are something that is unknown. However, for Paul, a mystery is something that was previously unknown, but has now been revealed. It had been hidden, but now it's uncovered. And the mystery he's speaking of has been revealed specifically to him. You can see this in, in verse 3. Look at verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And as we read the book of Acts and Paul's conversion, as well as the years following that event, we see that God had chosen Paul in a unique way to receive the revelation of this mystery about the Gentiles. The emphasis on, on revelation here highlights that, that Paul didn't make this whole thing up as maybe the Ephesians were wondering, but rather that he was ordained by God as an apostle who received authoritative revelations from God about this. Contrary, again, to the fears of the Ephesians, this message was not an invention of his imagination, but a revelation of God's eternal intentions. And God's intentions, his, his mystery that he revealed to Paul, had to do 
with the inclusion of the Gentiles, which Paul says he wrote to them about previously, which probably just refers to the verses before this. Of course, Paul wasn't the only one to whom this mystery was revealed. We find in verse 5 a phrase that we saw uh, last week in, in chapter 2, verse 20. It's that phrase, the apostles and prophets. So Paul says that this group of, of New Testament witnesses who, who formed the foundation of their church, the church had also been given this revelation regarding the Gentiles by the Holy Spirit himself. We can think about Peter. You remember Peter has a vision of unclean animals that he was called to, he, that the Lord said to call clean. And right after that vision, Cornelius, one of the first Gentile converts to Christianity, knocks on his door. And so Paul and the other apostles and prophets had been given a unique revelation about the gospel that he says in verse 5 was not made known to others in the past. Hence, the inspiration of the New Testament. They've received something from the Holy Spirit that they've written down for us. That, that phrase, though, that... Um, that this was not made known to others in the past, that phrase should give us a little bit of pause because if the mystery of the gospel that Paul is talking about is the inclusion of the Gentiles, then we should ask, is that something that previous generations did not know about? Because the reality that the Messiah would be a blessing to all nations was not a mystery to past generations, right? It may have been something that they failed to highlight properly, but from the beginning we see that, that in Abraham, remember, all the people of the, of the earth are to be blessed. We see in the law that provisions were made for allowing non-Jews to bind themselves to Israel and to her God. There was a place for the nations to come to God through Israel. So the fact that the nation, of the nations being included on the promises and the covenants, that can't be all that this mystery is referring to which I think is where verse six is helpful because there Paul says clearly, the mystery is this. And what we find, I think, is that the mystery is in fact just how fully the Gentiles would be welcomed into the people of God. What I mean is that, that we who are not ethnically Jewish, we are not second-class citizens in God's kingdom. We're not held at, at arm's length. The mystery that Paul and the apostles came to, to see through the revelation of the Spirit is, in fact, the complete unification of Jew and Gentile in Christ. I was trying to work this out. I was talking to Andrea on Friday night. We were preparing dinner. I was cutting up pork chops like a good Gentile. And I said, I said the difference seems to be uh, that before Jesus... Everyone thought that the nations would be blessed in Israel. But Paul and the apostles were given the revelation that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, would be blessed in Christ. I had not thought of it in that moment before until I said those, those words, those words came out of my mouth, and then suddenly it all made sense as we were standing there in the kitchen. So this is a side application, and the side application is that you should talk about the scriptures with your friends and family, because God might use those conversations to give you an insight that you don't have when you're just sitting there reading it and thinking on it by yourself. So we talk about a lot of things, don't we? We should talk about the Bible, and that assumes that we're reading the Bible every day, and so if we read it, let's talk about it in our homes. But back to the text, that's a side application, okay? 
the uniqueness of this revelation was that up until the coming of Jesus, everyone thought that the nations, the Gentiles, would be blessed in Israel. But the New Testament shows us that all people find the blessing of salvation in Christ alone. There's no need to go through the nation of Israel. You can go directly to Christ, and everyone does. That's why laws like circumcision and the food laws become obsolete, right? Because they're fulfilled in Christ, and therefore no one needed to become Jewish in order to be God's people. They only needed to come to Christ. They only needed to be in Christ. And to that end, verse 6 gives us three statements to make it clear that this mystery is beyond what anyone thought before it was revealed by Jesus and his spirit to the apostles and prophets and Paul. These three statements also get to the heart of the fear and the uncertainty that we feel when we wonder if this is all real or if we're really a part of God's great plan of redemption. And Paul tells us that we most certainly are because first of all, we are fellow heirs. We are fellow heirs. That's H-E-I-R-S. We, we spoke about this extensively last week, so I'm just going to remind you that Ephesians 1.5 says that we've been adopted by God the Father as sons. Ephesians 2.19 says that we who were strangers and aliens are now members of God's household. We all, Jew and Gentile alike, women and men, rich and poor, we are made co-heirs through faith in Jesus such that we all receive an equal inheritance. In our Sunday school class last week, we asked the children what was special about their family. And we heard about different blessings or traditions that each family has. And then we asked if someone was adopted into their family, would they receive all of those same blessings? And the answer is, of course. And the same is true of God's family. In fact, though, we could say that in the coming of Christ, everyone who is a child of God through faith in Jesus is adopted. Ethnicity is not a means of entrance into his family. Faith is. And so we all are fellow equal heirs through faith in Christ alone. We are fellow heirs. Secondly, Paul says we are members of the same body. We are members of the same body. Paul mentioned this in chapter 2, verse 16. He's going to expand on this picture in chapter 4. So we're going to save a deeper discussion for that Sunday when we go through that, whenever that might be. Uh, but the picture is fairly easy to get our minds around. Paul says elsewhere that Christ is the head of the church, and we are all united in the head as parts of the body of Christ. We are all different, but we are all equally members of the body. There are not two bodies of Christ. How many bodies of Christ are there? There's one body of Christ. There are no unnecessary parts of the body of Christ. We are all equal members of the, the one body that is Christ's. Third, we're fellow heirs, we are members of the same body. We are partakers of the promise. We are partakers of the promise. Ephesians 2.12 said that we Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise, but now that Christ has come, every promise and covenant is fulfilled in him. Jew and Gentile alike are partakers of the promise, and many of those promises we know now, but many of them are yet to come. So we who are God's children are waiting for him to take us to his perfect, to his perfect home. We who are citizens of his kingdom are waiting for the day when we live with him as our perfect king. We are partakers of the, of the promise, and we will be partakers of the promise. And all of this 
the end of verse six says, is ours in Christ through the gospel. And that's the key, isn't it? You can't read Ephesians and not see the theme of in Christ. The key is these things are not ours through Israel. They're not ours through works. They're not ours through anything else. They are ours as we are found in Christ Jesus. And the way we're found in Christ Jesus is through faith. Faith in the message of the gospel. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, then know that the way to be a fellow heir, the way to be a member of Christ's body, the way, the way to be a partaker of all of his promises is through repentance and faith in Jesus. All these blessings are, blessings are open to all people who will turn from their sin and trust in the perfect life and the atoning death of Jesus, the Son of God. This, says Paul, back in verse 2, is the message. This is the message that he was given stewardship of. It's the, the message that he's given management of. You might think about the parable of the talents where the three men are to manage or steward the talents that they are given to the best of their ability. Or maybe you have some kind of management responsibilities at, at your workplace, specific things that you are responsible. Paul was given the responsibility of managing and stewarding the message of the gospel, specifically the message of salvation through faith in Christ to Jew and Gentile alike. And this leads to Paul speaking in verses 7 through 12 about our second point, the proclamation of the mystery of the gospel. So in the first part, we see the revelation of the mystery of the gospel, how it's been revealed, and now we see the, the proclamation of the mystery of the gospel. Because closely tied to Paul's role as a steward of this gospel is his role as a minister of this gospel. He has, and he stewards it by proclaiming it. Or we could say that the, the message was revealed to him, verses 2 through 6, so that he would proclaim it, verses 7 through 12. And yet, he shows us that the proclamation of the gospel is not a task just for a select few, but it's for the entire church. He was given this task, but so are all Christians. Watch how he unfolds this, the, the place of proclamation in God's plan of redemption. In, in verses 7 to 9, we see Paul's role in proclamation. I think that's the best way to think about it. Paul's specific role in proclamation in verses 7 through 9. It's clear in verses 7 and 8 that, that Paul saw this commission to proclaim the gospel as from the Lord himself. It was a task that, that God was empowering him to do, and it was a task that Paul was completely humbled by. In hindsight, we might look at Paul and see God's wisdom in choosing him as the apostle to the Gentiles. He seems like the perfect guy for the task. But Paul himself was continually in awe of the fact that he, the least of the apostles, as he calls himself, that he was chosen for this task. His awe at the privilege of preaching this message was not only tied to his estimation of himself, but also to his understanding of the message that he was proclaiming. It says that the message he announced had, to do, announced had to do with the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I think I've said this before, but more than 80% of the world's ocean remains unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored. Isn't that amazing? 80% of the ocean is unmapped, unobserved, unexplored which means 
that the amount that we know about the ocean is less than the amount that we do know by a large margin. <laughs> margin. And I wonder if the blessings that we have in Christ are similar. That for all of the wonders of, of forgiveness and adoption and glorification and resurrection and acceptance, restoration and reconciliation and so on, for all the things that we do know and that we rejoice in, there are more riches and wonders of God's grace that we will discover throughout the endless days of rest in the kingdom of God than we know now. What we do know, we, we proclaim, but we speak of them as only the sliver of fathomless truth that we can comprehend with our mortal minds, knowing that there is so much more about who God is and the unsearchable depths of his grace. That's the message that we are proclaiming. And Paul moves from this picture of fathomless, fathomless riches back into the, the picture of mystery. Verse 9 to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. He comes back to this picture of, of mystery and he says that while the mystery has been revealed, his passion is to shed more and more light on the reality of what God has done in uniting all things and all people in Christ. He speaks of God as the one who created all things as if to say that he wants everyone to see the mystery of the fact that God has created all things, but you know what else he's done? He's created a new humanity. He's created a new people, eternally united to one another because they're united in Christ. This union to, with one another takes us from Paul's role in proclamation to verses 10 through 12, the church's role in proclamation. The church's role in proclamation. You know, for all of his humility, we could also maybe think that Paul thought a little bit too highly of himself and of this role that he has in the plan of redemption, that he has this special revelation that he's telling everyone. But what we find is that I think Paul saw himself rather as a small gear, a small gear in the machine of God's glory through the gospel. And he saw that, that if he did his part, if he turned the way that he was supposed to, he was a faithful steward of the gospel message, if he was a, a faithful proclaimer of the mystery of God's grace, then he could be part of, of the movement that would turn the larger gear of God's entire church to proclaim the glory of God to all people. And not only to all people, but he says to unseen powers. Look at verse 10. He says all these things about what he's going to do. And then verse 10 so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. All of what Paul was doing was so that, that's the key phrase in verse 10, so that the church would proclaim the wisdom of God, not simply to all humanity, but to the rulers and authorities, to the unseen spiritual powers in the heavenly places. Do you see this? We, the church to be a testimony to the manifold wisdom and glory of God. That word manifold can be translated many-colored. It's the same word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses to talk about Joseph's coat of many colors. Isn't that interesting? The manifold, the many-colored wisdom of God. So how does the church proclaim the manifold wisdom of God to unseen spiritual forces? 
By speaking the truth about Jesus, yes, but also by being a many-colored, multicultural tapestry of people that is unlike anything else in the whole world. We show God's wisdom, a wisdom that, that creates an entirely new humanity when we who are in Christ live out the reality of what God has done in Christ when through his death he tore down every wall that would divide we who are Christians. That's how we show his manifold wisdom. And realize this is not an afterthought of God. This, this idea of us being this multicolored tapestry, this multicultural unified group, this is not an afterthought. It, Verse 11, this was God's eternal purpose from eternity past that has now been realized in Christ Jesus. The multicultural composition of the church was not something that surprised God. It wasn't like the Gentiles started coming in and he said, oh, I guess we're going to roll with this. No, this was his plan from before time began. The blood of Jesus was shed so that God could purchase for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and thereby show his manifold wisdom to all people and to all the powers in the heavenly places. Think about this. Before Christ, there was a select group. There was a chosen people who had access to God, namely the Jewish people. And even among them, the priests were the ones with unique access to the presence of God. But now, look at verse 12. Now we all have boldness. We all have access with confidence through faith to come to the Father and to be embraced by him. That alone is an unsearchable gift that we all have been brought near in this way with boldness and confidence. So we could do three sermons on this passage, but just take a step back and follow the flow of these verses. Paul receives a revelation, a revelation regarding the new humanity that God is creating in Christ that makes all people who trust in Christ co-heirs with him, equal members of his body, and equal partakers of the promises of salvation. And this message proclaimed by Paul to all people comes to the church so that the church would display the wisdom of God to all people and to the heavenly places. A wisdom that, that existed in eternity past and has now been manifested in this day. How? Through the church. That's how God is showing his wisdom, is through the church. And so we're back at verse 13, where God's word asks us, is this something to be ashamed of? <laughs> is this something that we should think persecution can stop? Of course not. We, we have no reason to lose heart in the face of suffering or persecution for the sake of the gospel. Rather, in the face of opposition, we can have confidence. Why? Because of the truth and the glory of this gospel. This unfolding of God's plan and our place in it give us confidence that despite the opposition that definitely comes, we can be and we are a part of God's grand plan of salvation. Don't lose heart. Rather, like Paul, let's let our lives be consumed with the proclamation of this wonderful mystery that has been revealed to and through us. And to that end of pressing into proclamation, some questions to close that will lead us to application, okay? Just a whole smattering of questions, okay? So if you want them, 
I'll give them to you, but you probably won't be able to write them all down. <laughs> Do we consider this call to proclamation with the same sense of privilege and responsibility that Paul did? Do we feel the same humble awe that he had been chosen to tell others this message? Do we relish the opportunity to speak about the unsearchable riches that are found in Christ? Or are we inexplicably ashamed of the gospel? In verse 13, Paul is not only not ashamed of the gospel and his suffering, but he says that his suffering is in fact for the Ephesians' glory. He was suffering for their sake. And so the question then comes, are we willing to suffer for the glory of others, knowing that this gospel we proclaim in word and deed is worth our very lives and theirs? Church, because remember, Paul's talking to the church. Church, do we realize the part that we are playing in God's cosmic plan of redemption? Do, do we see the glory of the church in salvation history? that we are to tell others of the unsearchable riches that are available in Christ, and we are to shine as a light. And we're to shine a light on this mystery that has been revealed through Christ. We do that through speaking forth the gospel, but we also do that by being the visible expression of the manifold, many-colored wisdom of God in this world. We proclaim the glory of God in salvation to humanity and to the heavenlies when we strive to make the church a place that breaks down walls, all walls, walls of racism and sexism and ethnocentrism and classism and any other reason to divide. When we welcome the nations in, when we run to the nations with a message of hope, we show his wisdom. Do you realize that a, a church made up of a bunch of people that would hang out whether they are Christians or not, does not show God's wisdom. If our church is a bunch of people that even if they weren't Christians would still get together to have a meal together, then it doesn't show God's wisdom. It doesn't show God's glory. But a group of people, a group of people whose unity is inexplicable apart from the gospel, that's something that the angels and the, the powers in the heavenlies look at and are amazed by. That's what God has called us to. So, brothers and sisters, we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> we don't need to be ashamed of this message. The beauty of this message, the cosmic wonder that we have been brought into this message. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. We don't need to be ashamed of suffering for it of being persecuted for it, of facing opposition for it, because it's a glorious plan that is weaving together a beautiful tapestry that will display the matchless wisdom and the glory of God for all eternity. So in your proclamation of the gospel that has been revealed to us through God's word, Paul tells us, don't lose heart. Take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word, and then I will pray for us. Father, we pray you would forgive us for being ashamed of this message sometimes, not realizing that 
in the beauty of it, it displays your glory. So Lord, make us willing to suffer opposition and suffering and persecution. Help us not to be ashamed of those that are suffering rightly for the sake of your name, but rather to see the glory of it. Lord, that this message, while it is opposed in this world, is bringing glory to you and will bring joy to all people who turn and repent and believe in it. Father, thank you. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for the apostles that they boldly proclaim this, this mystery so that we Gentiles can be a part of your kingdom. Lord, that, that Paul didn't shy away from persecution, but, but went to prison so that the gospel could come to us all these centuries later. Lord, help us to take the gospel with the same zeal and the same joy and the same commitment to the nations and even just to our neighbors. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.